Welcome to another episode of the Safety Third Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Reynolds. I'm here with Stephen Marks again. Hey, Stephen. How you doing? Hello. Good morning. Good afternoon, Gabor. Yeah, that's right. We've got a special guest today, uh, Gabor Shiket. Or actually, if I was going to say it properly, it should be Shiket Gabor. Is that right? That's right. Good morning. Oh, I can't because hear you. We, we have... Couldn't hear you at all. First, we have the family <laughs> name, yeah? <laughs> We're going to have to redo that. It didn't come through at all what you said, Gabor. <laughs> oh, shit. Did this come through? Did this come through? That one came through. Uh, we, we may leave that in. Who knows, man? <laughs> that sounds funny. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, in, in uh, I guess in Hungarian, I didn't realize this until I knew Gabor for like 10 years. Uh, and then finally he tells me in Hungary, the family name comes first, uh, wow. which is really different. I think that the only language in, in Europe that does that, I think. Uh, is that right, Gabor? As far as I know, yes. I, I don't know any other languages do that in, in inside Europe. But we also, um, it's kind of like how we have family names. We have also like dates. So if you if you have the names of, of someone, you start with the something bigger group, like the family, and then comes to the individual, mm. like the first name. And we have the same with the dates. Like first we normally write the year, then the month, and then the, the day. So it's like from the bigger portions of ah, small so year month date that's even different than like americans will do month day year which is completely out of order and then europeans tend to do day month year which is at least a co coherent order but you're saying hungarians yeah. even do it the reverse of that as well yes okay well that's good well i'm looking forward to hearing your perspective today uh, if anybody's listening to this, they're probably wondering, is this a, are we talking about dates and, and uh, names today or what's the safety focus? To, so today we're going to really focus on the assessor perspective on product safety and specifically on functional safety. And so Gabor um, has a long history in testing and inspection and certification uh, of products, uh, both at the product safety level, so what I would call traditional uh, prescriptive safety. Uh, he's done that for many product categories to include medical devices. Uh, he's actually a medical quality system lead auditor, uh, and so he travels around the world uh, auditing uh, medical quality systems, so really has a big impact on whether you know it or not, your life, because chances are he's audited something that has been involved with you or someone that you love. And then also, he's a functional safety engineer, and that's how he and I know each other. So we're going to get his perspective on what it's like to be the independent third party brought in to evaluate whether or not a product is compliant. And in the case of functional safety, whether or not the safety case has been made that we should allow it to be used and put onto the market. So Gabor, I've just outlined a really uh, aggressive discussion for us today. And uh, I didn't really clear it with you beforehand. So is that okay? Fully okay. I don't know where to start. So yeah. you can help me which, which point you want to start first. Yeah. Well, I think maybe we can start by getting to know you a little bit better. So um, I guess I can start off with uh, where were you born? Uh, where where did you grow up? 
I was born in, in Hungary, in a small city, which is called Fehérgyarmat. It's a very small city near to the Ukrainian and Romanian border from Hungary. Um, it has actually um, a shield saying that this is, here you have the last petrol station before the border. The last battle um, so right station now. before the border. Wow. Last petrol station. Oh, petrol and it's station. Right now I thought you said petrol. last. I thought you said last battle station. I'm sorry. Last petrol station. Right now, right now, it's also there. Oh. Okay. <laughs> uh, as uh, as you know, the current situation, um, there is a little bit more soldiers are now there as as usual in the last uh, thirty years. Um. So I was born there and and raised there. When I was fourteen, I went to the high school in one of the next biggest bigger cities. That's Debrecen, with kind of like two hundred thousand uh, inhabitants. I learned there in this school mostly what is um, electrotechnics, what is automation what is used in industry, a little bit electronics. Um, now this I is in, this is when you're 14. So you're in, for us, that's like eighth or ninth grade, uh, late middle school. Yes. So you're already learning electromechanical devices and that sort of thing at that, at that age. Is that right? Yes. Yes. I started there in this school after finishing um, the the eight years and nine years I started there in that school, learned a little bit about PLCs, about programming, um, also very small things about microcontrollers and all of these, what is a diode make, makes and what how works, um, all these electronics transistors. Um, I really liked one, um, one class which was um, more about automatization, about how to measure uh, non-electrical things in an electrical way. So like volumes, flow, uh, temperature, of course, and all these kind of things, because I think it's kind of interesting how to, how you can really translate things to, to electronics and then uh, maybe also to digital signals. Yeah, that's a, um, that's an interesting thing. I'm going to cut in on you real quick, not to be rude, but just, I just want to, I just want to say that is very different than my high school experience was. Um, I grew up in a small town in Texas, which is also the last battle station before. You, <laughs> uh, at least that's how Texans view Texas as the last battle station for whatever battle you want to fight. Um, uh, but the my experience there was we were very much introduced to theoretical things in general about chemistry, physics, biology, but I never touched any of the kind of things that you were talking about in my high school experience. So you said this was when you're, I guess, 14 to 18. So about what years was that, if I can ask? Yes, it was from, from like 14 to 18, 19. Um, it is different because we have also these, um, how to say, normal high school when you have... Um, no, I mean, what All like the cal- languages? I mean, what calendar year? Like, oh, it was 
I don't know. It doesn't That's even know. Question. So for me, that was long, like, long time ago. Long time ago. For me, that was like 1994 to 1998. No. Those were like my high school years. Um, it was 20 years ago. Exactly 20 years ago, I finished there. 20 years yeah. ago. Okay. Now, Stephen, I have to ask you, you've been to high school more recently than either Gabor or myself. So did, did you have any of those kind of things in your high school experience? No, absolutely not. Uh, nothing like that. There was some like robotics clubs and stuff, but total extracurricular um, and not offered by the school as a part of the curriculum. Yeah. I think so. You had a robotics club. Okay. Were you in the robotics club? No. No, you weren't. Okay. Um, was that by choice or were you not selected? Which? Uh, I don't know if there was selections. I It was by choice. I didn't try out, if you will. Yeah. No, I think it's changing because my son, my kids, I have kids in high school now and they have a robotics curriculum like of like two years worth of classes that they can take. So they've already programmed robots to play soccer and to battle each other and all that kind of stuff. So I was trying to help one of them with physics or, or engineering homework the other day and they're doing like free body diagrams and, and trust and frame calculations. And I'm just thinking, wow, I didn't do this until I was in college. So. Sounds like, I guess what I'm trying to say, Gabor, is that we're, I think we're catching up to what you experienced in, in the 20 years ago in our high school education. Yes, but in, um, we also have different high schools, um, and this was where I was visiting. It's a very technical high school, more on the electronics. Mm. Um, so this is why I learned all of this stuff, but it also means that, you know, you cannot have much more classes than what you can have in one day. So like I only had one language, so no two languages as in some other high schools. So that was the way how we did. Um, so this was a specialized engineering high school and then yes, someone yes. else would go to a medical high school or a lawyer high school or is that how it works? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, it's okay. Special type. Okay, good. Okay, so you went to this uh, technical high school, and then what? What happened after that? After that happened that um, you know when you you try to find out one in what college you go, you can go and visit those colleges and and look what what is interesting for you. And I was kind of into into electrical engineering, and um, by one of the colleges I saw about medical engineering. Um, and then it was kind of interesting and I thought like, okay, if we know how to measure non-electrical um, parameters uh, in electrical parameters, it's kind of like what we do in the medical too, uh, because in medical you are also measuring blood flow, temperatures, you measure a lot of things on, on, on people. Um, it sounds like very strange but it's it's kind of like what you do in automatization too the same kind of things you you do measure parameters of something some system and then you react on that mm, the same in in the in the medical field you measure blood pressure you measure the heart rate if something going wrong you you turn on an alarm or you start to change the medications and and do all of this so I saw it at one of the colleges and I said, okay, that's what I, I would like to learn and do. And this is how I ended there. 
um, and studied in, in Budapest. Um, we had an option to do um, after, if, if you finish the first two semesters, then it was possible to get one more um, additional graduation on that. So like parallel learning some other stuff and it was um oh, like a, a dual teaching a dual degree is that what you mean like yes uh, yes okay. yes to, to start a dual degree if you if you finish the first two semesters and you are not too bad um, you could choice choose that and it was from my perspective like okay i i was like i don't want to be a teacher but why not doing this and get two degrees at the end of it only with two semester more um, time on the college. Oh, I see. So you got an en engineering teaching degree. So specifically for teaching engineering, is that is that right? Yes, yes. Specifically to teaching engineering or teaching kids in those special electrical high high schools uh, on electrotechnics or or communication techniques. That's good. And this is in and Budapest. That was, so this is. This is exactly like 16 years ago or 15 years ago. Is that right? When you graduated? Yes, yes, okay. yes. And it's then, like 16 years ago, yeah. And then, Steven, you what university was that, Gabor? It's, it's called, I think right now, Budapest University. It was in the past called Kondo Kaman um, University. Um, Gondo Kama was an um, engineer for some hundred years ago who made some um, electrical uh, trains and this kind of stuff. Cool. Yep. And when I was there on the, on the college, it was possible. And I was thinking about let's do some... Um, some Erasmus program, go to visit another country, learn something else. And I was thinking, let's do a master thesis. If you can do this uh, program, not just go over summer for uh, some months, but let's make it real and serious. And I applied for the Erasmus program. And this is how I went to Germany studying biomedical engineering. And in two years, and I graduated as a biomedical engineer, made my master thesis there. Uh, it was two years, like one year theoretical um, classes um, and all the practice there. And one more year as a thesis year when I went to a company and, and tried to there make some development writing down my result and, and make a thesis work out of it. Yep. So in that, <clears throat> in that it case, was a great time because I did that in, in EADS, um, that's the space agency in Europe. And it was in a very great place in Germany. It was near at the Lake of Constance, which is just on the border to Switzerland. Uh, it's very great. So if someone wants to go to Germany, he needs to visit this uh, lake area. Very nice. Wow, that's good. <clears throat> so quite a, a different experience, I think. You know, so you you mentioned this Erasmus program type thing. So you you did your undergraduate 
biomedical engineering and teaching engineering in Budapest. And I assume that degree was in Hungarian, right? Yes. And and (laughs) you're like, yes, of course, Eric. And then, and then you went to Germany to do your master's degree and you did that one in, I would assume in German, right? Yes. um, Halfway as it was important that it is in Germany and, and you know, German for, for the school, for the college. But the funny thing was that on this class, we had like 25 uh, students. And out of the 25, we had maybe five from Germany and the other 20 outside of, from outside of Germany. And I think we had like three non-German but German-speaking students, uh, everybody else was only speaking English, if if any. Mm. So um, also most of the classes were in, in English, oh, okay. some not. And you had to also select some additional classes. I tried to select only German classes as one of my reasons was going to study in Germany to, to learn German and and making having a better German at the end. So I was really decided to let's uh, study in German, learn German and hang up also with the Germans to to learn German because that's the only way you can you can learn it. Right. Yeah. So full immersion there. So so by the end of your master's degree, you've got a, a bachelor's in biomedical engineering and a engineering teaching bachelor's and then you have a master's in uh, biomedical engineering as well. And you have German and English as well. So then you, then you move into the, and the experience at EADS, um, the work experience there. So then you move into the job market. Is that right? Yes. Um, I actually tried to move into the job market. Um, when I finished my thesis, um, it was 2008, 2009. Uh, with the with one of the financial crises we had, mm-hmm. and it was quite hard to find any job as a, as a fresh graduated uh, student coming out from the university and um, doesn't really know where to go. Um, so I was searching for a long time. I, I applied in in Germany. I applied for jobs in Hungary. Uh, nothing really happened. Um, and then suddenly, of course, it happened, but I went to many, many interviews and then I was uh, hired by a small medical company in, um, in the other part of, of Germany, um, near to, to Leipzig. And my job was there to working on, uh, um, X-ray uh, machines, X-ray devices used in, um, in let's say, normal small practices. Um, and in urology, we had some um, laser machines also used in, in the, these operations area. And um, the work mainly was maintenance, service, and um, we had one huge uh, project change we had to change the existing um, X-ray medical systems we had um, to 
change the, the detector to flat panel detector because before it was um, it was an optical amplifier. So it was a huge uh, change on that system. And that was maybe the first time when I was really met with the um, think what is it called, medical device directive, what is um, CE certification, because we had a CE certification on that machine from the beginning, but as you want to make a significant change on that, you had to redo a lot of things and recertify it. Yeah, I think that's a good point that you bring up there about directives. And for the European listeners that we have, they may be very familiar with it. Some of them aren't, though. Um, and then also, uh, for, especially for the American listeners that we have, uh, the two regulatory schemes are totally different. So in the U.S., product regulation, with very few exceptions, is governed at the extremely local level. So if you have a piece of equipment or machine uh, that's going to be installed somewhere, then a local inspector is the one who approves whether it's acceptable or not. And usually what they're looking for is a mark from some nationally recognized testing laboratory, like a UL or, a, or an Intertech or, or many of the other ones that are out there. Um, but in Europe, it's different um, because they actually have uh, directives that you mentioned, like the medical device directive or the machinery directive or other ones that are the the law of the land that by placing something on the market you're declaring that you comply to it and that's true all the way across europe um, and so I, a lot of american companies think that they can just sell to europe and and send it send it in but they don't understand the the depth of how that regulatory framework works so it's a big difference is is that your experience too gabor or what what do you think Yes, yes, it's um, it's a big difference, and it's a very often a big question um, how to start with this process, and what is um, good or not good for like for the European market, and what what is good for the um, North American market. Um, very often you see this CE mark, uh, which should show that this um, device is conforming with the European directive, um, and. Normally, if you have the CE mark on your device, it means you are free to go and you can do what uh, you can install, you can market the device. Um, and it starts really when um, like you want to s- transport something from US to, to Europe and on your machine there is no CE mark, then already the custom can stop it and say, okay, you are not allowed to come with this product to the market. Um, and the CE mark is first, you can make it very easy because if you think you are okay to the directives, you make a self-declaration and uh, you write there that, yes, everything is good. Uh, but of course, you also write that you are responsible for, for the machine. Um, and then you can put the CE on it. And this all works for many, many products. Um, but there are, of course, um, some exceptions, like from a risk category of medical devices from class two or even for some class one devices. 
you are not allowed to do it for your own. You need to go to a notified body and this notified body has to and, and will assess your device, assess your quality management system, audit you, and then they give you one certificate and then you can make this self-declaration is, okay, the device is really fulfilling the requirements and conform with the directives, and then you can put it onto the market. Yeah, and even that's... still, you did that once, you get every year the periodical audits and recertifications. And so it's it's a very, very, very controlled thing. Yeah, I think it's a... I actually prefer the European system to the North American one personally, because it feels a lot more certain if you're going to place something on the market that you've done the right thing. Uh, whereas in the U.S., you can have one county uh, vary. You know, for instance, Los Angeles County may have a different requirement than Orange County in California. It's it's a lot. There's a lot more uncertainty in that in exactly what's required. But I want to go back to this idea of self declaration because for most products, the CE mark is a self declaration that you're declaring that you comply with all applicable directives, uh, the essential health and safety requirements of those directives to include chemical banned substances and the way that it's recycled and all these other things that may affect it. And in my experience, a lot of folks say, well, um, yes, I, I meet it. And, and they'll apply the CE mark to their, to their product but they don't know the risk that they're taking. So with, with most of the CE marking directives, you have to have a declaration of conformity. And so that's a, a document that states, here's my product. Here are all of the directives that apply. And here's how I am showing compliance to the essential health and safety requirements of that directive. And then a person signs his or her name to that declaration of conformity. And a lot of folks don't understand that that person is financially and criminally liable if the product is found to not comply or um, in the worst case, if someone is injured or, or, or killed because of the product, right? So I think that's a, a big misunderstanding that people have, especially people from the U.S. going to Europe. They don't, they, they don't have an understanding of that. So I guess, Gabor, you've been a... Um, you've been a, uh, assessor, a third party assessor, uh, and in a test lab and working with certification, have you seen, uh, CE marks that have been applied that were not appropriately applied before? Um, no. no. Um, okay. That's good. No. Well, yes, uh, it's, it's depends. So. It is strange. Um, so one, I, I saw devices which should have and should wear CE mark, but it didn't have any mm -hmm. um, because it was produced in, in some country and someone just imported it and said, it's, it's cheap, I can sell it. And this someone sold it. And when, the, when something wrong is happening, not, nothing is happening when there is no any any incidents or any bad events. But if something happens and the authorities just show up at your address and they start to ask questions, 
and some people are then realizing and that even first they don't know what 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 is going on and then uh, they tell them like okay as you bought an important this device to the EU market you have the you did the marketing of this device so you are responsible for this device so that house was burned down because i don't know some some tv you sold and imported without c mark that's that's your responsibility um many people don't know it and then um then they get surprised and then they have big big problem i also saw some devices which had um c mark on them um and they wanted to have a medical um certification and the device had already c mark uh, but not for the medical uh, directive it was for the low voltage directive as um, how to say like um, household um appliance it appliance or or like lifestyle product and they wanted to make it uh, as a medical device as it's more more serious um better controlled so they even can ask for higher price if if they can prove their their medical use so i saw these kind of devices which already were on the market get the ce had the ce but these were never these were for example not really a hazardous uh, device so it's still okay mm-hmm. yeah so i think it's a that you have to have a strategy for how you're going to approach all of these things especially if you're going into multiple markets at the same time because um if you're going to go to the US and to Europe for instance uh these two different regulatory strategies require different documentation they require different uh tests sometimes um and they require different procedures as well uh, as far as inspections and audits and that sort of thing so it's a complicated thing and working out that strategy is is not simple and straightforward so I want to ask you a little it bit is, some I want to ask you a little bit some Gabor about uh, your time as an assessor um, and so um, you, you you worked at EADS and then you worked for the x-ray manufacturing company and then from that point did you move into the uh, regulatory world or or did you do something else from that um, medical manufacturer i went to um, to a test lab which wasn't which is a uh, nationally recognized test laboratory um worked there in germany for about like seven years uh, tested many many medical devices laboratory devices even some some energy photovoltaic devices um, to their applicable product standards and then i moved to um and then i moved back through to hungary um st- uh, worked for a very short time with a, at a, at a small robotic company worked on the on their quality management system and on their um on the technical file of of one of their products to get the CE certification um and from there i moved uh, for over 7 years ago to to an auditing company um and since that i do mostly and only the auditing and assessment on on medical devices yeah which is 
So do you have a do you have a number over the years about how many devices you think you've either tested or certified or audited? Do you, do you have any idea of how many it is? No, no, but it's uh, it, <laughs> it must be it it must be something over several hundreds um, of different devices. Some large and, number. <laughs> some large number. It's yeah. <clears throat> you know if you do um, work in a test lab. Um, in every two weeks, you are working on another product, um, maybe on the testing. But um, of course, some have some projects and products will have in time some overlapping. But let's say in every month, you at least finish three, five uh, certifications um, on those products. And in seven years, I don't know how much that that makes up. Um, and now since I do audits over 40 years, I don't know, I, let's say this week I had one audit uh, for one company. They had two products, um, close the report, get, uh, give them some non-conformities to, to check and, and improve their system. Um, last week before um, other companies, so nearly every week, one or at least maybe sometimes two, three companies I, I work with. Um, I don't know. I don't know the numbers. Yeah, it's, so I, it'd, be hard to, it'd be hard to count because I imagine when you're at the lab for those seven years, that's individual products every couple of weeks. So that's hundreds of products. But now as a quality auditor, you're looking at not only one product, but entire the whole company's products, right? All, so if they make 30 products, you're looking at all of them or at least the quality management portion of all of them each time. So it's really, I guess what I'm trying to get at is your experience and the impact that you're having on the medical device market is you're, I assume that every time you walk in a doctor's office, you see something that you understand more deeply than the average patient, I would say. Is that, is that accurate? Uh, yes. I, I had today a phone call with, uh, with a friend and he was telling me that he was just on the on the on the radiotherapy um, session, um, and he was explaining me things like, "Oh, he was he's a quite new machine and nice, and it's so so interesting." He didn't know at the beginning why they asked him to take a picture, but actually the machine uh, recognizing his face, and then he gets a treatment. And they said like, oh yes, it, it's because the most issues are happening now in in hospitals uh, is that they they mix up the patients. So someone gets a doses you need to get, and someone else get your doses. So it's not good. So if they if the machine already recognizes the face, um, they not only rely on on, on the administrative failures. So <laughs> he explained me something. It was nice for him. And I explained to him that's about the risks um, the machine um, mitigated. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's a big difference. Yeah. Mis misidentifying a patient. Um, you know, that's, I'm glad that we have a technical solution to address that problem. Because when you rely on humans, even well-educated ones and well-meaning ones, there's just a failure rate. Even if you have... A very 99.9% accuracy rate with patient identification of matching the right treatment to the right patient. Well, you still have one out of every thousand patients that gets the wrong one. 
right? Um, yes, and you don't want to be that one right. patient, or you don't want that your mom is that one patient. That's right. That's right. So it's uh, it goes back to our other discussion uh, that we had last week with Scott about the high reliability organizations. Hospitals are trying to adopt this high reliability organization structure and trying to figure out how do you perform at an extremely high organizational reliability level. Um, and it's an ongoing area of research and application and problems. So I think it's, it's an interesting one. Okay. So I want to ask you, Gabor, about, um, what it's like to be an assessor. You just mentioned that you did an audit this week or last week, and you gave them some nonconformities. I think a lot of people's impression of assessors is that that act of giving nonconformities is pleasurable to them, is fun, that they like to go around and find problems and point them out and they love to fail people and that sort of thing. Um, is, I guess, uh, what do you think about that stereotype? Is it, uh, is it accurate or is it some, a little bit accurate or is it completely wrong? What do you think? It's completely wrong for my person. Um, for sure, there are some person they like to show their the power, and maybe they want to show it with with nonconformities. Mm. Um, we are also not uh, paid by the number of nonconformities we we record, so don't don't think about that. That I need to give you five because uh, that's my my monthly or weekly rate to meet the the target of of nonconformities. Um, I. I do have to um, write down sometimes uh, non-conformities because, you know, you get the feeling about the companies uh, and about the people working there. Some companies really eager and want to know all the feedback you give them. And with that feedback, they they, they will work. They, they take it like a good opportunity to improve uh, their, their system, their quality. Um, and and their product, they are really write down everything, and they, they they really want to to get better. There are companies they they take it like okay, if if you just talk about that, that they don't take it seriously. So you really need to write down those nonconformities. Otherwise, there is no no meaning of of your work uh, because they really only learn if there's something is on paper. Mm. Um, by some companies, I had the feeling they they really want. Then, of course, I, I will write down something because if, if something huge uh, or or bigger problems are there, um, then we write down um, because then there is all the time um, a follow up work. So if I want to see how they solve it and what they want to do and need to do, then uh, there will be a nonconformity. If there are small things uh, we discuss, we talk a lot about that, and then they 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 solve those those problems um, very soon, and because they want to solve it, you know, you can uh, write down nonconformities or you can write down observations. Um, in my practice, I'm not allowed to do to write their so-called possibility to improvement so or, or any really positive um, 
uh, feedbacks um, because in some like 9,000 when you can you can add plus points to the to the customers uh, here it's only nonconformity is the negative part um, but um, it is not about to let's write down the nonconformities and then um, this is I showed you and I, I'm happy to do this uh, if you think about the other end, if I write down the non-conformity, I have a follow-up work. I need to close those non-conformities. I have a lot of administration with that. So actually, I don't like to write down non-conformities uh, because then I have more work. But um, if I want to see and want to continually follow up in the next couple of months on, on problems, then I need to write a non-conformity. Yeah. Otherwise, I see this, uh, what will be happening or what will be improved. Otherwise, I see it only in one year. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, you you have assessors who do it for the benefit of society and they want, they want to make sure that products that go out that will affect them and the people that they love um, are the risks are appropriately handled with those products. And then you have companies that want to do the same, that always want to get better about it. You do have those outliers who are uh, people who really, I guess, take pleasure in finding things wrong with other people or something. You do run into those kind of assessors, I'll have to say. I've met them before. They're rare, but I've met them before. And then you also run into companies who, it's not that they want to put a bad product on the market, but their focus isn't on putting, they, they just want to get it, get that process done. And I think the worst case is when you get both of those together, you get an assessor to that is just very pleased with finding things wrong in a company that um, isn't really motivated to make things right. When you get those two together, that's when, you know, the trouble starts. But in the good case, like you just talked about, where you have companies who really want to put good things on the market and you have an assessor who really wants to uh, provide outside feedback about things the company may not see or changes in best practices in the industry. I think that's the best case and really what makes the best societal reasoning for why we have this whole assessment process. I want to say as well, um, people don't know as well that assessors get assessed themselves. Is that true, Gabor? Um. What, oh, what I guess the, maybe not. I, don't know. <laughs> uh, no, I um, guess what I mean. I by, don't know. Yes. Yeah, they do. I, I mean, the. I guess what I mean by when I say assessors get assessed themselves is that you had to go through a process to get approved to be an assessor, right? Oh, yes. Um, you um, had to have some experience and you had to have some supervision and you had to have some test that you had to take. And then also your work is continually checked by other outside parties, accreditors and other things to make sure that you're doing your assessment properly. Um, and exactly. so I think um, that's there's even a check on the checks that we have. Does that make sense? Yes, and, and it's a very, very high level and, and very detailed checks. So as I do quality audits and I do assessment on products, um, we also, as uh, 
certification bodies, notified bodies, and and all the auditors and assessors are also part of uh, of a very very hard and strong and strong um, quality system and and performance reviews every time. Mm-hmm. Um, even to go to the to the point that you will be able to audit or assess a company and the product. You need to have many, many years experience. You you are actually just qualified for not everything, which is medical device. You are qualified for, for first of all, you can have active or non-active medical devices. So things which are powered with something or things which are not powered. So like um, syringe is a non-active medical device. I am not allowed to audit or assess anybody who is doing syringes uh, because I'm doing the active part. So if someone comes with a steroid device, I have no idea and I, I, I don't do those audits. And then all the product categories are, are different. Um, if you if you are qualified for um, ECG and electrocardiograph or you're qualified for an ultrasound machine, you are not qualified for a laser surgery device. So that's a different category. For all of this, you need to have um, special knowledge, special trainings, go to some audits. You just visit and listen what's going on, uh, getting um, a witness audit uh, from um, someone who is allowed to check your work and then qualify you. So someone with a lot of experience come to your first audit and then you need to be good and perfect and you get your, your own non-conformities to work on that. Mm-hmm. And um, all the notified bodies get um, audited by uh, national authorities, getting also audit non-conformities. We also have internal audits. So my company from one uh, location will go to some people to another location and will audit their work and process. And even when you are qualified for a long time, some someone will say, okay, now it's your turn. Now we will do a other witness audit by you. So let's see how you work now after, I don't know, like five years of, of practicing. So it is very, very controlled, yes. So not even individual or individuals, but as well as individuals, huge accreditation bodies like TUV, they get their certification from another certifying body as well. So even these huge organizations are getting certified. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Um, if you go to, um, there are some official web pages of the European Commission, and you can look which um, certification bodies are notified to what type of products and what type of um, directives um, they are allowed to do audits and and then issue a certificate for those type of products. And they got, um, got through a long, long and big, very hard pro- process to get those qualifications, show that they are ready to do it. They have good and competent personnel and a good system to, to being able to deliver that, uh, that certification service, that audit services. And year by year gets also re-audited and, and checked. And if you are very bad, um, even you got your, your notification, you might lose it. 
there are some they, they lost because they made a bad performance for years and years. Uh, some notify bodies and then they, they lost their, their scope. So they lost some of the standards on some of the directives. Yeah, I think that's the measure of whether a, an assessment or a certification process is effective. If everyone passes and no one ever fails it, then we might as well not have the process, right? It's a, it, it has to set a standard that's higher than what people would normally do on their own. And Stephen, I'm, I'm going to pick on you a little bit here because uh, you just went through a process, a personnel certification process yourself, right? Yes. Okay. What, what, yes. what personnel certification did you attempt to go for? The uh, IEC 61508 hardware software design certification by TUV Rhineland. Okay. So that process, what was the process like for applying for that uh, or trying to achieve that? Yeah. So you had to take a three-day course. You had to take a pretty rigorous exam and have to have three years experience in functional safety along with uh, an engineering degree. Mm -hmm. So in that case, you had to take the course, have some experience. They look at your... I guess application is that is that what it would be, um, and then you take yeah. the test. Was it how how hard was the test? The t test was quite difficult. Um, I, I think it has a, a a pretty low passing rate, um, and it was quite difficult and very very uh, in depth on the standard of sixty one five zero eight. So very in the weeds of the standard. So you have to know the standard um, like the back of your hand. Yeah. And so I have to ask you, did you pass? I, I did pass. Have you gotten your certificate yet? Your certification? I, I, I have, yes. Oh, that's great, man. Well, congratulations. And, you know, you may say that to somebody who doesn't understand how that whole process works, but to anybody who does, um, you know, it's a big achievement. So I want to say congratulations there. Um, Thank you. It's a good thing. Congratulations. Yeah. So, well, um, Gabor, we've been talking for a while now, and I think, you know, it's been really good to get your perspective here about auditing and assessing and certifying from someone who's been there and been doing it for a long time. Um, but I also uh, want to, you know, recognize the value that you bring. We started off this discussion talking about some of the differences and similarities between the way... Um, you know, Hungarians uh, talk about the world, look at the world, the way they approach the world and the way North Americans or, or, or other folks do. And I think we talk a lot about differences, but I think differences are what are really interesting. One of the principles of safety system is diversity, right? Of having different types of technologies, different people developing software, what have you. Just the diversity makes for more robust um uh, more ro robust performance in the end. And I think specifically some of the things that I learned about Hungarian technical prowess has been really interesting to me. There are quite a few when I was looking through the list of very famous Hungarian inventors and scientists. And, and um, it's just been a really, uh, a really inspiring thing to me. And so I'm glad to see you continuing the tradition of, uh, high technical capability uh, for your home country. And I did want to ask, um, just in case we do have any other Hungarian 
speakers out there listening to this episode, is there anything that you would like to say to them to um, kind of, uh, I don't know, give them a shout out or, or give them something to say? I don't have much to say to them, but I think I, I'm, I cannot compare myself with those um, um, big scientists uh, from, from Hungary who worked in the past um, and made a um, lot of things and changed in the, in the world. Um, I just think it's, um, it's all the time interesting to see how people think, how people talk and how people dream and this difference makes um, also a lot of change in the world and we can improve uh, already by that, that we think differently and we talk differently. Yep. A hundred percent. I agree. Well, thank you for uh, joining us today and uh, we'll continue talking again sometime soon. I hope uh, Stephen, thanks for letting us uh, pick on you a little about the certification. Again, I think it's a big achievement and I want to say congratulations. And uh, to you, Gabor, I'll say, uh, uh, I think I should say see ya, right? Is that right? See ya? No? Yes. And let's say, <laughs> and, and I would say also in Hungarian, and then, uh, but first I translate to you. So thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, it was a very great um, discussion. So in Hungarian, Köszönöm szépen a lehetőséget, és nagyon örültem, hogy itt láttam veletek. Wow. Well, thank you, Gabor. Beautiful. Yes. It's very interesting. Looking forward to talking more.